This podcast is brought to you by DNA Ticks, the genetic ecosystem. The genetics industry is coming to the blockchain. For the first time ever, users can test, store, and transfer their DNA safely and anonymously. DNA Ticks is transforming the way we map, store, and use DNA. The DNA Ticks token sale has just begun. Register now to get early access to the new genetics ecosystem. DNAtix.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. This podcast is brought to you by DNAtix the genetic ecosystem. The genetics industry is coming to the blockchain. For the first time ever, users can test, store, and transfer their DNA safely and anonymously. DNAtix is transforming the way we map, store, and use DNA. The DNAtix token sale has just begun. Register now to get early access to the new genetics ecosystem. DNAtix.com. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is Daniel Jones. He's the CEO and co-founder of Oral Analytics. That's spelled A-U-R-A-L analytics.com. So Daniel, how are you? I'm doing wonderful, Rich. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah no problem. So tell me about uh, your company. What's the premise of it? Well, uh, we, we're a health tech company that uh, uses mobile devices and specifically uh, speech, fine motor, and cognitive linguistics to measure uh, changes in brain health, uh, specifically early identification and longitudinal tracking over time. When you say brain health, what, what kinds of things happen to our brains that cause them to be diseased? Yeah, so I'm, I'm talking mostly about neurodegenerative disease, and uh, that happens in, in various different forms and different ways. Um, you know, motor diseases uh, such as ALS and Parkinson's affect uh, the brain and the central nervous system so that some of the muscle functions that uh, are required to speak and move and, and live a normal life are, are affected in a very real and meaningful way. And then, you know, we also cover cognitive uh, disorders such as dementia and Alzheimer's where uh, the brain struggles to, to find the words to say. And I have a saying that, you know, in, in our business that, um, you know, you, you struggle to find the words when you have cognitive challenges. You struggle to say words when you have motor challenges. And our technology is such that uh, we can measure for finite changes in both, you know, motor skills and cognitive skills. And you're trying to do this through a person's mobile device, or how do they? Uh, how do you get data on them? Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, today the the typical uh, standard of care is is a human uh, subjective rating scale, where uh, a speech language pathologist or neurologist will will listen to somebody speak and and make a very subjective assessment on uh, how healthy that patient is. Well, it turns out that uh, our mobile devices actually are able to detect very, very finite subtleties about uh, those speech signals. And because of the complex nature of speech and how it requires so many different movements within the brain uh, to work together as one, if you break down that speech signal, you can actually identify very specific nuance changes with the, with the brain and the patient's brain health as it relates to that signal. And so our technology is algorithmically driven, uh, set up so that we can analyze for very specific changes uh, based on a solicitation task used through the mobile device. Um, and uh, that's, that's kind of the beauty of, of where technology is today is we can detect things 
using our mobile devices in a much better way than we can just with human ears. Well, true. If I if I was worried that I had you know a motor a cognitive disorder and then I'm sitting there in front of a speech therapist, I'd be very nervous. And I don't think my true capability to speak or to think would be representative because you would be affected by that, right? Yeah, that's correct. So, I mean, the, the, the speech language pathologist has a number of different challenges facing them. They they're typically uh, do, using a cassette recorder, paper and pencil uh, in terms of how they're analyzing and, and uh, measuring changes. And uh, they're only seeing you maybe once a month, sometimes once a year. So the subtleties in, in brain health and the changes over time can be pinpointed on a much more daily basis using your medical device. And uh, it represents a, a really fundamental enhancement to uh, the way we're currently measuring brain health. So what do you do? You use like a person's speech when they're on the phone and, you know, they allow you to record them or something and you analyze it or you know, how do you take data? Yeah, that's correct. So, so we, right now we, we, uh, our primary uh, use cases are, are in clinic, uh, both in clinical trials and in clinical settings where um, a carefully curated uh, mobile application that's asking very specific questions to task specific areas in the brain. Uh, the patient works through a very easy three to five minute set of tasks that have been curated for them. Those tasks uh, solicit a speech sample, comes into the device, goes immediately up to the cloud where we run our machine learning algorithms against it and identify a panel of objective finite results. And we deliver those back to the clinicians in real time. Um, and that's the, really the entirety of the existing use case today is a patient just simply uses a three-minute uh, um, solicitation task on their mobile device. Could be in clinic and could be at home. Well, so it's a finite amount of time they'll be doing this, or do you anecdotally just record them over like a series of days or a week to see, uh, you know, to get a lot more data and see what they're doing, you know, in various conversations and times of day and all that stuff? Yeah, so, so that's really the difference between active listening and passive listening. And today we do what we call, we call as active listening, which is, the patient deliberately opens up the application and, and reads through a series of prompts. And those prompts, again, are designed to solicit very specific taxing areas in the brain uh, that can further break down the speech signal for us and our algorithms. Over time, what we anticipate doing is actually breaking down passively collective speech, which could be something like, you know, similar to what, a, what an Alexa would do, which is passively listening to your speech over a period of time and breaking down components of that so that you don't have to open up an application in the future. Uh, in the future, you, you'll, you'll just go about your normal course of day and uh, at specific times and specific instances, we'll be breaking down that speech, analyzing it in real time. And essentially think of it like a check engine light for the brain. If we detect that something might be wrong, we identify that. Yeah, it's funny. If you're not used to doing them, it seems like Having people do crosswords would be like a good stress test because you have to think of synonyms and words you may not normally think of and answer questions. You know, maybe like the, not the New York Times level, but it seems like that would be a good way to test this, not not ver non-verbally in addition to verbally. Yeah, that's right. And, and there, so there are lots of different uh, really uh, good ways to solicit cognitive um, analyses. Um, you know, there's lots of different brain tests and, and uh, brain games that that have come out that really allow people to, you know, theoretically remain sharp and, and kind of hone and improve cognitive skills. So there's certainly lots of examples out there where, where games and gamification can be beneficial. 
So what have you noticed about uh, your interactions with people so far? Like, you know, what are some surprising things you found? Well, I, I would say, I mean, primarily we deal with institutions and, and, you know, the people that use, that buy our technology and use our technology are folks like pharmaceutical companies and health systems that are, are desperately trying to find a better way, a lower cost way uh, to analyze what's happening in a patient's brain. So what, what I think was surprising for me was the, the existing state of affairs, if you will, the existing gold standard uh, for brain tracking and, and identification is these big, heavy exams. You know, think about like a PET scan. Think about getting a big needle in your spine. Um, think about blood draws. All of these things are offline and all these things are critically expensive for health systems and hugely uh, burdensome for the patients. And so what I was most surprised uh, was really the current sort of gold standard and how offline and subjective and expensive and invasive it was. And in talking to folks, the reception to using mobile technology as a way to identify disease and track disease, uh, track therapies, et cetera, has been overwhelmingly positive. And, um, and that I think has been, has been the most surprising sort of dichotomy in, in, our, in our learning over time is the existing state versus what is possible and the appetite for that. Can you tell yet how good your system is? Like, uh, are you at that point where you've gotten data back and you're able to see patterns and, you know, uh, forewarn people of problems? Yeah, so, so great question. The, 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 the reason uh, we, we're, we're as advanced as we are is we've been built on 25 years of data and NSF and NIH funded research. So, so the, the foundation of the company and all the data collection and analysis goes back you know, 25 years. And that acts as the, as the basis of building our initial algorithms a few years ago. But we, we didn't, you can't really achieve um, acceptance until you are validated by external key opinion leaders. And the way we've gone about that is we've partnered with pharma companies and health systems to, to use our technology in trials, real uh, paid trials with hundreds of patients across multiple disease states and analyzed our algorithmic results and our metrics against, you know, those current gold standards to determine, you know, are these things real and viable? And in fact, they are. In fact, they're above a 90, a 90th uh, percentile in accuracy. And, and that's, you know, a testament again to having this great foundational layer of data. Uh, algorithms have been trained over a, a number of years. And then the external validation and data that's required uh, so that we're not just telling people, hey, this stuff works. We have you know, chief medical officers at some of the largest institutions saying, yes, this thing works. Yes, we'll use this and adopt this long term. Well, what, you have a 98% um, correct rate on what? What are you able to diagnose and you know, how far in advance? You know, what, is the, what does the tool do right now? Yeah, so we, we don't diagnose today. And I think uh, that's a critical distinction is, is really we're, we're an analysis tool today. The long-term strategy and goal of the company is to become uh, an indicator of early disease detection and then become a companion biomarker throughout the life cycle of a drug or a patient in care. So, so today we're not a diagnostic, but we're pushing in that direction. Um, so, so, I mean, today the, 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 the use cases, again, uh, you know, a patient would use the, the mobile application uh, in clinic or at home. Those, anal those uh, samples go up to the cloud. We analyze and we deliver a panel of results back. And clinicians then can look at those and say, you know, yes, the drug is working. No, the drug isn't. Yes, the therapy is working or not. Uh, the patient is a fast progressor. 
this this subset of population is is moving in a certain uh, direction. Let's take a closer look at them. So it's really that that sort of analytic output that is that you know the most important um, valuable thing that we're delivering today. As we build uh, our data sets and as we achieve de novo and and 510k acceptance at the FDA, then we can push into you know really uh, working in and around diagnosis. Well, you know. I'm, I, I'm just asking for some specifics, like what are you able to see today in the settings that you're in? You know, what indicators or what things have you seen? Well, we measure everything from nasality to um, velocity to speaking rates. Um, we have a panel of about 400 different uh, outputs that, that we see and measure every day. We're working across um, areas like ALS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, concussion. Uh, really across the, and there's many more, really across the the uh, spectrum of neurodegenerative disease, um, and that's really the the that's really what we see is we see um, you know multiple diseases, and we're measuring for hundreds of different uh, results. We analyze those against current gold standard functional rating scales, and we determine you know fast movers, progressors, early identification, et cetera. So at, at the point you can diagnose in the future, what's your goal? Is early diagnosis, uh, better diagnosis? you have any metrics around that? Yeah, so we've actually published a couple of papers uh, to date on, on our analytics that um, were picked up by New York Times and Wall Street Journal and some others around um, Ronald Reagan and Muhammad Ali and a series of NFL players. And um, the, the, the data and, and results are really compelling. So we were able to identify um, Alzheimer's and Ronald Reagan seven years before diagnosis, Parkinsonism. Really? In yeah, yeah. Uh, we analyzed. So in Ronald Reagan's case, we we and for Muhammad Ali as well, we had to go back a number of years and analyze, um, you know, press conferences and you know, uh, written notes and a number of other inputs. And that that we analyzed that against our algorithms and 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 got all that data published. And the findings were really compelling, and that sort of sets the table for us to be able to say definitively, um, yeah, we can start exploring early detection and early diagnosis. And if you think about brain disease, and, and we can focus on Alzheimer's here since we're talking about Reagan um, and dementia, the, the onset of the disease actually starts 30 years before you start to see you know, meaningful symptoms. And so you have health systems and governments and pharmaceutical companies and families um, looking for some type of way to detect the disease years before it's too late. And the result of that means trillions of dollars of cost savings in the healthcare systems globally, uh, just in Alzheimer's alone. It also means that drugs have a much higher likelihood of being successful because what's happening in pharmaceutical companies is, is these pharma companies get very promising compounds into trials and they can't fix what's already broken. They need to have a funnel of folks that come into the funnel much earlier uh, and, and have a much better better path uh, to, to being successful. And that's really what the technology long-term is designed to do. It's what our company strategy is, is be you know, the, the, the best early indicator of disease progression uh, on the planet. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I was gonna ask you, right, so if you can diagnose someone, let's say, 
10 years before they get Alzheimer's or dementia, what, what do you, what could be done? Is there anything right now that can be done or it simply will open up a window where we could find more drugs and treatments that would help people? Well, cer- certainly the care of the patient improves dramatically and the, and the costs uh, in the system go down dramatically. Um, so it's estimated, you know, right now, this came out in time, time magazine, this is an $8 trillion cost savings. If you can identify Alzheimer's uh, years before current, current standards. So that's a that's a massive uh, you know, societal and family impact, caretaker impact. The massive cost savings for um, for governments and for health systems and payers. Um, but I think you can also you know the, the, in terms of therapies and in terms of you know your comment about crossword puzzles and all the other brain and cognition games and all the other therapies that can be deployed against the disease earlier. You know, prolong quality of life, lower cost. And that's a beautiful outcome for us, and it's one of the, the core pillars of our strategy. Um, Good question. Are these, are these conditions, I don't know enough about them, unfortunately, but is Alzheimer's, um, you know, if you detected it, it's going to happen maybe in 10 years in somebody. Is there anything you can do about it? And why would the cost savings be so substantial? Why would there be trillions in cost savings? Like, what would you change? Or what would be changed if someone was, was uh, you know, observed to have a potential for Alzheimer's in the next 10 years? Yeah, some of these diseases are terminal, right? And so you can't, unfortunately, um, today, we don't have a cure for, for these diseases. And so what you're after is optimizing risk. Uh, if you're a payer network, you want to identify these folks earlier and get them on the right treatment paths and the right you know, care paths earlier so that there's not these, these substantial costs that you hadn't been thinking and building into your, into your risk metrics as an insurance company. That's one aspect of cost saving. The other one is planning. And, and, you know, I know this personally because I, I've actually had all four of my grandparents uh, be affected by some type of neurodegenerative disease, stroke and dementia and Alzheimer's and the other three. And, and, and what happened with our family was we were blindsided by the news and ultimately didn't have a plan in place to effectively manage it. So, so costs and stress and, you know, uh, my, you know, my mom having to, had to move jobs and all sorts of other different societal impacts that we oftentimes don't think about. But if you can plan ahead, you can really mitigate significantly. Okay. So it's, all right. So it may not be a medical intervention. It may just be, like you said, the planning and, and not, a, you know, having a sudden issue like that. Well, we've been talking a lot about Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's, the medical interventions are, you know, largely drug-based and largely, you know, just not quite good enough. And so, the silver bullet for pharma companies to find a compound that might cure or really impact the disease is doing exactly what we've been talking about. That is getting people into their funnel that might be at the very, very beginning of disease formation or at, at risk for the disease, and thus the, the need for the technology much earlier. That, that would show long-term promise at getting compounds across the line and drugs in the market that would then effectively uh, push down the overall cost because then you're 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 working with people that um, are much earlier in their progression, and that that's really the the outcome here. With brain injury, with you know, you've seen this with TBI and concussion. You know, the the it, it you cannot go backwards. You can heal a knee, you can heal an elbow. With the brain, it's extremely difficult to go backwards. So the the name of the game is to try to find things earlier. You know, work in, on therapies and outcomes much earlier. And that's how you achieve you know, the long-term outcomes that the, the entire system is out, is out for. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a super important project and uh, you know, we're all going to experience some kind of cognitive decline. Yeah. The numbers are pretty astounding. Uh, you know, I, I think, I don't know if you, you personally have experienced this in, in your family, friends or network, 
um, but the impact of it is is really difficult. Um, and anything that we, our little company can do or our little piece of technology can do to, to mitigate it or combat it is, I think, welcome from, from the broad industry and community. So what's your, um, your anticipated roadmap? How long before you're able to get to, uh, you know, you'll be in widespread use and then how long until you can get to the stage where you'll be able to diagnose, you think? Yes, I think we're probably, you know, 18, 18 months or so away from our first FDA approval. Uh, we, have, we have enough data in, in a couple of motor diseases to make our approach. We'll be, we'll be releasing those data findings here shortly in partnership with a couple of major health systems. And so, so once that, that process is started, then it becomes, you know, 510K on top of the de novo application uh, for specific diseases. And, and from there, we can build and build and build. So I think we're probably around 18 months away from our first, you know, major breakthrough with the FDA, which is very, very exciting. Um, through the process, you know, we we fall outside of regulatory uh, hurdles now. We can work in the pharma and research spaces, and we can work in and around, you know, things like speech therapy and and work with speech language pathologists uh, in the short term to build out, you know, adoption and and consumer usage. But once you get that that critical threshold crossed with the FDA, and you have you know, external validation, then you can see really significant clinical adoption and really significant downstream consumer adoption. And then I, I would say we're probably four to five years away from being able to, you know, participate in the diagnosis of a patient. And remember, you know, we, I don't ever anticipate having the iPhone tell you that you have Alzheimer's. I, have, you know, I envision, and I think everybody collectively, if there was a chief medical officer on the, on the call, he would tell you the same thing, that, that you would still have to go see your neurologist and, and have other testing done before definitive diagnosis would ever be reached. So, so that's, that's you know, critical to think about here, too, is that, is that you know, even still, you still want to have multiple data points uh, to validate that somebody has a disease. because. Misdiagnosis is also a huge problem uh, in, in, in this as well, where somebody with Parkinson's uh, might be misdiagnosed along the way, receiving the wrong treatment, the wrong drug, et cetera. So you want to be really careful with how you reach ultimate diagnosis. And I think we'll play a really important part of that, but I think it'll still be a collective diagnosis effort. Any last uh, comments? You said you analyzed Muhammad Ali and Reagan. Um, yeah. What surprising things did you learn from that analysis? Because that's really interesting. I mean, you know, I don't, without giving away your secret sauce, what did you learn from that analysis? You know? Well, I think I think we've learned um, quite a bit. You know, first of all, it was validation that our hypothesis held water, right? That we that we could use the speech signal uh, and cognitive signals to identify the disease much earlier than human raters, and and that you know just the the external validation of that and getting that published was was, I think, really, really important, not only for us, but for the industry in general. Um, it shows and proves that, yes, you can use this type of technology and this type of data stream to, to get there. Um, you know, I, I'd also say that, you know, through those couple of studies, um, we learned a lot about the differences in each disease. And, and you know, Parkinsonism and Parkinson's and motor diseases are, are really very, very different than Alzheimer's and dementia cognitive-related diseases. Now, some people have both, but, but what we learned and, and how we have since trained our technologies and built our infrastructure is that what you solicit for somebody who might be at risk for Parkinson's is very different than what you would solicit for somebody with a cognitive impairment. And, and that, that learning 
and the, you know, the training of the algorithms and the outcomes and the metrics that we deliver across motor and cognition, et cetera, are very different. And, and really the, the initial studies we did helped us learn that and helped us identify how to really do that. Okay. Well, very good. So what's the best way for people to find out more, you know, and keep pace with what you're doing and, uh, you know, get involved if, at an early stage if possible? Uh, sure. Well, well we uh, visit our website, um, rlanalytics.com, A-U-R-A-L analytics.com, or follow us on any of our social channels, obviously, at rlanalytics. Um, and, you know, we'd, we'd love any any uh, inquiries or uh, questions. We welcome them. Um, please visit the website. There's lots of links and, and information uh, there for people to get more uh, access and insights into what we're doing. Well, that's great. Well, Daniel, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rich. Appreciate the time. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.